Um, as you open up to Jeremiah chapter 26, I, I think about it when we approach a passage of Scripture like this tonight. And as we approach the book of Jeremiah in general on a Wednesday evening, um, sometimes I think that I'm crazy for doing what I do in teaching verse by verse through a book of the Bible like this. I mean, I imagine me talking with a, you know, a consultant or an expert in church growth or progress or administration or something, and him saying something like, you're doing what on Wednesday nights? Um, because, listen, I, I know people like to be inspired. I know people like to have, you know, a, a high, hopeful, stirring vision and, and to get pumped up and excited about things. And look, if you've been with us on Wednesday nights in the book of Jeremiah, it's not exactly that kind of book, is it? It's a book that talks a lot about judgment and a lot about the the dark aspect of God's righteous work in this world. But let me tell you why I do it. I do it not because I'm looking for an opportunity to preach a lot of judgment. That's not my preference, actually. No, I do it because I believe in God's word. I believe that it is living and active and more powerful than any two-edged sword. And I believe that God's word does not come back void. And I believe that even though it seems so strange to us in our modern perspective, and I totally accept that this seems strange to us, the themes of Jeremiah seem strange to us in the modern world. I believe that there's something in God's eternal word that we need to gain from here tonight. So let's open up our hearts and receive from this. Jeremiah chapter 26, beginning at verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah, which come to worship in the Lord's house, all the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not diminish a word. Perhaps everyone will listen and turn from his evil way, that I may relent concerning the calamity which I propose to bring on them because of the evil of their doings. The the, the prophet Jeremiah had a 40-year span of ministry, and the book of Jeremiah is not arranged chronologically. It skips around from time period to time period. Chapter 26 is given to us in the first few years of the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, verse 1 says, Jehoiakim came to the throne in 609 BC. This was four years before the first Babylonian invasion and taking away of exiles. In that first Babylonian invasion and taking away of exiles, men like Daniel... And his four Hebrew friends, or three Hebrew friends, were taken at the same time. So this was the very first one. It was just four years after Jehoiakim came to the throne. Now, this particular prophecy must have been very early in Jehoiakim's reign, before the first Babylonian invasion. They're on the horizon, but they have not yet invaded Jerusalem. Now, it seems that what we have in Jeremiah chapter 26 speaks about a message that is also recorded and recorded in greater detail in Jeremiah chapter 7. It seems like it was the same message preached at the same place at the same time. Chapter 7 tells us more about what Jeremiah preached. So you just might want to write that in your Bible, Jeremiah 7, if you want the more in-depth of what this message was. But Jeremiah chapter 26 tells us about the effect of the sermon and what happened afterwards. 
But let's just take a quick look at what he said. He says here, verse 2, do not diminish a word. God told Jeremiah to stand in the temple court and to preach a message to all the cities of Judah and to all who came to worship at the Lord's house. And it was important that Jeremiah said everything that God told him to do, that he did not leave out a word. You don't hold back a single word, Jeremiah. And then God says, verse 3, perhaps everyone will listen and turn from his evil way. Look, it's possible, God says, that the people might respond, that they might return to the Lord. That is always God's heart when he announces judgment. Friends, I don't want anybody to ever think, and it's important to say as we talk about the book of Jeremiah, that God delights in judging humanity. God does not delight in it. Matter of fact, God's earnest desire is that men and women would repent. That's why he announces his judgment. That's why he lets them know it's coming, so that they will repent. And that was God's desire here in Jeremiah chapter 26. Now look at verse 4. And you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me to walk in my law, which I have set before you, to heed the words of my servants, the prophets whom I sent to you, both rising up early and sending them, but you have not heeded, then I will make this house like Shiloh and will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. Okay, I'm telling you, if you won't listen to me, this is what I'm going to do. What did God say he was going to do? Look at it right there in verse 6. Then I will make this house like Shiloh and I will make this city a curse. You can just picture Jeremiah gesturing towards the temple. I'll make this house like Shiloh. I'll make this city a curse. Now, what was Shiloh? 1 Samuel chapter 4 tells us that Shiloh was a city where the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle of God was set up in the early days of the book of 1 Samuel before Saul became king. And what happened was the Philistines came and overran it They killed a bunch of priests. There was a massacre of the people. The tabernacle was destroyed. And the Philistines even carried away the Ark of the Covenant. That's what happened. Shiloh was a symbol of God's judgment, of destruction, of desolation. It was a terrible scene. And it's a very simple message. He says, listen, do you remember what happened back then? It's going to happen again. Look, let me put it to you this way. And I hope I'm not inflaming any bad memories when I say this. But when you and I think of 9-11 from an American perspective, we go, man, that was terrible. That was a disaster. That was something awful. That, that was a crime perpetrated against the United States. Okay, you, you get kind of emotional about it. Friends, it's as if God says, if you don't obey me, it's going to be 9-11 all over again. That's basically what he's saying. By drawing the figure of Shiloh and putting it before them. Now look at verse 7. So the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. Now it happened when Jeremiah made an end of speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, that the priests and the prophets and all the people seized him saying, you will surely die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord saying, this house shall be like Shiloh and this city shall be desolate without an inhabitant. And all the people were gathered against Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. So there's Jeremiah speaking out boldly, preaching in the temple courts, saying, if you don't repent and listen to God, God's going to wipe out this city, destroy this temple, and who knows what's going to happen to the Ark of the Covenant. And as he's preaching those words so boldly, so fearlessly there on the temple courts, the priests and the prophets say, stop. 
we don't want you to preach this message here. Stop and you shall surely die. You're committing treason. You're saying that God's going to destroy us when we believe God wants to bless us. You see, the priests and the prophets in the ingrained religious system of Jeremiah's day, they did not believe that judgment was coming and they were offended that Jeremiah preached it so. Matter of fact, they said, we're going to criticize you because you say, verse 9, that this house shall be like Shiloh. And they said, no way. So what's happening? He's been arrested. He's been stopped. We are going to stop you and we're going to try to put you to death. You shall surely die for this message you have preached. Let's see how it develops here in verse 10. When the princes of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and sat down in the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. And the priests and the prophets spoke to the princes and all the people saying, this man deserves to die for he has prophesied against this city as you have heard with your ears. So look, you have the priests, you have the prophets, You have the people, and now you get the princes of Judah, the royal leaders. Maybe some of them were actual princes. Maybe some of them were part of the royal court. They're going to judge this matter, and the priests and the prophets come as the prosecuting attorneys, and they say, this man, Jeremiah, should be executed. He's committed treason. He's spoken against the city. He's spoken against the temple. Off with his head. That is their attitude. That's what they say there in verse 11. This man deserves to die for he has prophesied against this city. They they, they branded him as a traitor to Jerusalem. And they believe that Jeremiah dangerously weakened morale with the army of Nebuchadnezzar out there and who knows what it might do. Friends, do you get the idea here? The army of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar was out there and could come against Jerusalem at any time. The priests... The prophets and many of the people did not think that it was helpful to have a guy saying, we're going to lose, we're going to lose, we're going to lose. That's what Jeremiah was saying. So they brought the case before the princes. And let's see what happens here. Verse 12. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the princes and all the people. Okay, stop right there. Stop right there. If you know something of this guy, Jeremiah, especially from the first few chapters of the book, how do you think of Jeremiah? Is he like bold as a lion? Or is he kind of shy, hesitant, retiring? When God calls him, he says, Oh God, I'm just a youth. You can't call me. That's what he said in the very first few chapters of the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah did not seem to have a big resource of natural courage. He wasn't one of those fearless leaders of men, you know, that would stand up in the face of whatever kind of thing. No, no, that wasn't Jeremiah. Jeremiah seemed by nature to be timid, and shy and retiring. He was a reluctant prophet. He was a prophet who cried a lot. Why do I say all this? Because friends, starting at verse 12, you're going to see Jeremiah about at his finest in the entire book of Jeremiah. So let's just think about this and say, go Jeremiah. Here you are shining in your finest moment, perhaps in the entire book of Jeremiah. Okay, ready for this? Verse 12. Then Jeremiah spoke. Friends, he's on trial for his life, literally. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the princes and all the people saying, please don't kill me. No, that's not what it says, is it? Look back at verse 12. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the princes and all the people saying, 
The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city with all the words that you have heard. Now, therefore, amend your ways and your doings and obey the voice of the Lord your God. Then the Lord will relent concerning the doom that he has pronounced against you. As for me, here I am in your hand. Do with me as seems good and proper to you, but know for certain that if you put me to death, you will surely bring innocent blood on yourselves and on this city and on its inhabitants. For truly the Lord has sent me to speak all these words in your hearing. God bless you, Jeremiah. At this moment where you are literally on trial for your life, you stand strong before the princes of Judah, men who had your life in their hands. And what do you say to them? You say, verse 12, the Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city. It's as if he's saying, hey guys, don't blame me. I am just the messenger. The Lord sent me to deliver this message. If you don't like the message, take it up with the author of the message, and that's the Lord God whom we serve. I am just the messenger. That was a bold thing to say to the princes of Judah. And then he goes on, verse 13. Did you see what he said there? I can't believe the boldness. He says, therefore, amend your ways and your doings. In verse 13, he called upon them to repent. Listen, guys, you sit in judgment of me. No, 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 no. God sits in judgment of you. You have to repent. Now, to understand how bold that is of Jeremiah to say that, the next time you stand in front of a judge, why don't you try the same technique? <laughs> next time you're in traffic court, you know, you're disputing that ticket, why don't you say, and let's talk about your driving habits, your honor. <laughs> try that. See how far it gets you. Prince, do you see the boldness of Jeremiah here? It's genuinely remarkable. But notice this, he's also humble. He's not arrogant. Look at what he says in verse 14. As for me, here I am in your hand. Do with me as seems good to you. Listen, I I understand. You're in authority over me. You're going to do with me as seems good to you. I'm in your hand. I understand that. Do what you feel you must do, but I'm not going to stop doing my message because it's what God has called me to do. You know, in this, Jeremiah spoke very much in the same spirit as the apostles in the early church. Centuries later, in the book of Acts, chapter 4, this is what they would say when they stood before judges. Notice this. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge, for we cannot speak the things we have seen and heard. Isn't that the same attitude that the apostles had in Acts chapter 4? Hey, listen, judges, fine, I understand. You got your job to do. You do whatever you're going to do. But we're going to do what is right before God. And if we got to take our lumps, if we got to endure our punishment, we'll do it. I I hope that I'm not um, being paranoid or I hope that I'm not being alarmist when I say that the day when believers may have to stand before judges with the very same attitude may not be far away in our own land. Where I might have to stand before a judge uh, accused of a hate crime, maybe for just saying what the Bible says. Now, hopefully I would say it with the spirit of love, but I would bring forth what the message says. Hey, don't blame me. There's the message. I'm just the messenger. 
But if I would have to stand before a judge, I hope I would do it with the same courage and with the same humility that Jeremiah did. Your honor, do what you got to do. You're the judge. I'm in your hand. But I will not stop speaking what the Lord God has given me. And if it means that I have to endure punishment, then so be it. That was Jeremiah's attitude. But notice this. He did say this. He gave them a warning in verse 15. Know for certain that if you put me to death, you'll surely bring innocent blood on yourselves. It's a little funny. It strikes me that Jeremiah was saying that more for their benefit than for his. Look, you got to know, if you're going to kill me, okay, whatever, you're going to kill me. But this is what you got to know. If you kill me, if you put me to death, there will be innocent blood on your account before God. And I don't think you want that. You better think twice about this. Better think twice about this death sentence that has been suggested for my case. Now look at what happened, verse 16. So the princes and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, this man does not deserve to die, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And you can see Jeremiah going, Friends, do you see something? How God blessed the humble courage of Jeremiah. He would not back down. And doesn't it seem, I know, I know the text doesn't specifically say it, but doesn't it have the feel that he won the respect of the princes of Judah? And of the people, by the way. It says that the people understood that too, that he won their respect. They said, listen, this guy might be crazy, but at least he's sincerely crazy. He really believes that he's the messenger of God. It's not like he wants these calamities to come upon Jerusalem. He believes he's bringing God's message. I want you to look again at verse 15 where he says, Know for certain that if you put me to death, you will surely bring innocent blood on yourselves. That appeal seemed to work. But I want you to fast forward in your mind a couple centuries, maybe about five centuries ahead of this, five and a half actually. Um, Because centuries later, there was another innocent messenger of God who was unjustly accused of by religious leaders. And in the trial, they were warned that they would have the blood guilt of an innocent man upon them if they continued. The difference between Jeremiah and Jesus is that Jesus was sent to death nevertheless. The judges in Jeremiah's case came to their sentence. And they understood, verse 16, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. They didn't like Jeremiah's message, but they had to admit that it was God's message and that it wasn't right to blame the messenger for faithfully delivering the message. Verse 17. Then certain of the elders of the land rose up and spoke to all the assembly of the people saying, now these elders are pretty remarkable guys. Look at what they say. Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah king of Judah and spoke to all the people of Judah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins and the mountains of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah and all Judah ever put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and seek the Lord's favor and the Lord relented concerning the doom which he had pronounced against them? But we are doing great evil against ourselves. 
So verse 17 explains how there were certain elders of the land who stood up after he was pronounced not guilty. Now, maybe the elders were afraid that some mob justice might take place. Look, friends, it's happened more than once in history where a man or woman has been acquitted by a formal court, but the mob took vengeance upon them. And so the elders say, we know that the princes of Judah have just acquitted this man, declared him to be not guilty or not deserving of death. But let us explain something. There was a prophet about a hundred years ago named Micah of Morasheth. And they explain about the prophet Micah. Now the prophet Micah, his prophecy is right there in your Bible. Look up the prophet Micah. That's the same Micah that they're talking about. Micah of Morasheth. And the elders of Judah stood up and they said, Micah of Morasheth said some pretty harsh things to King Hezekiah about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And Hezekiah never killed him. Hezekiah, if I could say it, He took that message like a man and he said, let's repent. He said, maybe we should do the same thing. Now, I think it's kind of remarkable here in this work of Micah the Morasheth. I want you to notice something that Micah said right before this portion that they quoted. The portion that they quoted, by the way, they quoted exactly from the Hebrew text. Micah chapter three, verse 12. They quoted exactly, which showed that if they knew what Micah said exactly more than a hundred years later, it showed how much they valued and, and published the words of the prophets. But Micah chapter three, verse 11, the verse right before it says this, her prophets divine for money, yet they lean on the Lord and they say, is not the Lord among us? No harm can come among us. That was the mindset that Micah of Morasheth spoke to. And you know what? It was the exact same mindset in Jerusalem a hundred years later in the days of Jeremiah. They said, hey, us and God, we're good. Do you remember what I told you a couple weeks ago? What was the main tenor of Jeremiah's message? Jeremiah's main message was this, repent. What was the main tenor of the message of the false prophets? Their main message was relax. God's gonna make it good. And they recognized, you know what? Micah, who was a godly prophet, he didn't preach relax. He preached repent. And friends, let me just say very quickly, parenthetically, there is a time when we need to hear from God relax, is there not? Matter of fact, that, that can be a totally valid message from God for an individual's life or for a congregation or whatever. But that wasn't God's message for them at this time. His message was repent. So the elders stuck up for Jeremiah and pronounced him not guilty, and they defended him. I want you to notice something. When Jesus was unjustly tried, no elders stood up and spoke on his behalf. Isn't that strange? This man, Jesus of Nazareth, who did good everywhere, there was not a single leper or a single blind man that had been healed or a lame person that had been brought back to, to mobility. Uh, There wasn't a a dead person like Lazarus who'd been brought from the dead. None of them stood forth and said, how dare you do this against Jesus of Nazareth? I'm going to stick up for him. You know, there's nothing like having somebody stick up for you when you're in a tough spot, right? Jeremiah had the blessing of that with these elders. In Jesus' suffering, he didn't have that blessing. Now, continuing on here, verse 20. 
Now there was also a man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah, of Kirath-Jerim, who prophesied against this city and against this land, according to all the words of Jeremiah. And when Jehoiakim the king, with his, all his mighty men and the princes, heard his word, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard it, he was afraid and fled and went to Egypt. Then Jehoiakim the king sent men to Egypt, Elnathan, the son of Achbor, and the other men who went with him to Egypt. And they brought Uriah from Egypt and brought him to Jehoiakim the king, who killed him with the sword and cast his dead body into the graves of the common people. This is the story about a man, as verse 20 mentions, Uriah the son of Shemaiah. This was another faithful prophet in the days of Jehoiakim the king and Jeremiah the prophet. By the way, you know, we preachers, we have these bad habits of just saying things that aren't really true in the Bible. Here's one of the things that I've probably said many times before about Jeremiah. That Jeremiah was the only righteous prophet in his day. Nobody, Jeremiah stood alone. Listen, there were certainly times when Jeremiah stood alone, but there were other righteous prophets. Now, this man, Uriah, was such a faithful prophet that he paid for it with his life. But he prophesied a very similar thing. And what happened? He escaped to Egypt when he heard that there was a death sentence pronounced against him. But King Jehoiakim sent out messengers and had him killed. Now, it's a little bit interesting as to why this account is there. There's two main ways of thinking. The one way of thinking is uh, Jeremiah's scribe, a man named Baruch, added this to show us how dangerous it was what Jeremiah was doing. And that's a possibility, okay? There's another possibility, though. It could be, and I kind of lean more towards this idea, that this is something that the elders said to Jeremiah. And what are they doing? They're giving a not very subtle hint. Jeremiah, no death sentence upon you. You felt like you were doing right. But if you keep doing this, you're going to wind up dead just like Uriah. That's kind of how I intend to it more. But it shows us Uriah, the son of Shemaiah, was murdered, was martyred for his faithfulness to the Lord's work. Verse 24. Nevertheless, the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah so that they should not give him into the hand of the people to put him to death. Would you please look at verse 24 just for a moment? It says, nevertheless, the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah. Now, we don't know exactly who this Ahikam was. Maybe he was one of the elders, probably so. And it's just maybe the leading elder among them who defended Jeremiah. But again, isn't it wonderful to have somebody who will stick up for you when you're in a bad spot? Now, two things I want you to consider. Number one, Jesus had no Ahikam. Jeremiah did, and he was greatly blessed by him. Jesus had no one, no man at least, no woman, to stick up on his behalf and defend him when he was on trial. But the second thing I want you to think about, and friends, this is the exciting part. Are you ready for this? Jesus is your Ahikam, isn't he? Isn't he the one who has pledged to be by you? There may be times where you're in a tight spot, you really need somebody to stick up for you, and you know what? Nobody sticks up with you. And I'm not going to justify it. I'm not going to say, well, you just got to deal with it. Man, it's sad, it's disappointing, sometimes it's crushing. But let me tell you something. Even when no person with human flesh stands behind you, Jesus Christ is your ahikam. 
He's the one who will stand beside you and never leave you or forsake you. All right, on to chapter 27. Chapter 27, verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, okay, stop right there. We got a difficulty here, friends. There's no way I can dance around this. There seems to be a corruption of the text here. I don't know what particular Bible translation you have in front of you. I'm reading from the New King James Version. The New King James Version, as do many translations, have right there in verse 1. I'll read it to you again. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, just like chapter 26, verse 1 started out. Here's the problem. This wasn't during the reign of Jehoiakim. And there are several old manuscripts, ancient manuscripts, that don't have Jehoiakim there. They have Zedekiah. And that fits perfectly. Can I remind you about the chronology again? Zedekiah was the last king to reign over Judah before the Babylonians completely conquered. Completely conquered. So keep that in mind. It says, in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, but the reference to Jehoiakim is a problem, again, not only because of the manuscripts, but because of the history and the rest of the chapter. This is likely a scribal error, and who we're talking about is Zedekiah here, not Jehoiakim. Okay, ready for that? Let me read again, verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, I'll just replace it, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, thus says the Lord to me, make for yourselves bonds and yokes and put them on your neck and send them to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the Ammonites, the king of Tyre and the king of Sidon by the hand of the messengers who come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Okay, you got the scene here? We're talking about the last king of Judah before the complete Babylonian conquest and the temple is destroyed and Jerusalem is destroyed. And it says there in verse three that they came to him, they came to Zedekiah. And what did they do? Well, Jeremiah had a job. Look at it there in verse two. Make for yourselves bonds and yokes. What did he tell them to do? God wanted Jeremiah to make bonds and yokes. This is what I told him to do. Do you know what a yoke is? No, not in an egg. The kind of yoke that you put upon animals, that they pull things. Make a yoke and bonds. What were the bonds? Well, they weren't like handcuffs. They were the leather straps that they would use to tie the yoke to the animal. So it was a yoking system, both the wooden yoke and the straps used to tie it. So what does Jeremiah do? We know this from the next chapter that we'll get to next week. Jeremiah actually put this upon himself. He walks in the midst of King Zedekiah while King Zedekiah is hosting all these envoys from different nations. What different nations? Did you see it there in verse 3? Send to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the Ammonites, of Tyre and Sidon. All these envoys from these foreign kings have come to Jerusalem to meet with King Zedekiah and they're there in the midst of it, when Jeremiah comes in with a yoke on his neck. Hey, everybody, here I am, prophet of the Lord. Now, why were they there? Why were all these envoys from these foreign kings there in Jerusalem? I'll tell you why. Because when you chart it out with the chronology of history, this was a time when Nebuchadnezzar was in trouble. 
Elam, that ancient kingdom, which is in today modern-day Iran or ancient Persia, Elam had attacked Babylon. In Syria, there was a revolt against him. Nebuchadnezzar was distracted, and he was a thousand miles away from that region. So the kings of that region, the Edomites, the Moabites, uh, the Amorites, Israelites, all those guys, they got together and they said, now's the time for us to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. We can throw off his domination and we can be free. Because by this time, by the reign of Zedekiah, Babylon already ruled over the era. Zedekiah was a puppet king from Nebuchadnezzar. They said, now's our chance to revolt. They got together to discuss this. And then Jeremiah walks in with his yoke. So what does he say? Well, let's take a look. Starting here at verse 4. And command them to say to their masters. In other words, speak to the envoys of these foreign nations. And command them to say to their masters, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to your masters, I have made the earth, the man, and the beast that are on the ground by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and I have given it to whoever seemed prosper to me. And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and the beast of the field I have also given him to serve him. So all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the time of his land comes. And then many nations and great kings shall make him serve them. It shall be that the nations and kingdoms which will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and which will not put their neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, this nation I will punish, says the Lord, with the sword, the famine, the pestilence, until I have consumed them by his hand. They're having a meeting to plot revolt against Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, until the prophet of Jeremiah walks in wearing a yoke. Jeremiah, what are you doing? Guys, the Lord just told me to bring a message. Send this back to the kings whom you represent. If you try to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to lose. God has given him the authority to reign at the present time. Give up your dreams of revolt. It's not going to work, and you're just going to suffer from it if you do it. Verse 16. Um, No, excuse me. I'm sorry. Uh, Verse 9. Therefore, do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, or your sorcerers who speak to you saying, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you to remove you far from your land, and I will drive you out and you will perish. But the nations that bring their necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will let them remain in their own land, says the Lord, and they shall till it and dwell in it. Do you see the point here? The point is very plain. He says, don't listen to those other spiritual mediums, prophets, diviners, dreamers. Don't you listen to anybody who tells you that you can win against Nebuchadnezzar. Do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, your sorcerers. You see, just like the king of Judah, those other kings, they all had spiritual people around them telling them, you can beat Nebuchadnezzar. Now's the right time. He's weak. He's distracted. You can get him. Jeremiah says, don't even dream of it. If you submit to the yoke that is upon you, God can bless you. That's what he says. Look at verse 11. 
the nations that bring their necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will let them remain in their own land. What God says to them is simply this. If you submit to the yoke of the king, by the way, you know what a yoke means. You put a yoke on something, I'm your boss. You work for me. God said, if you submit to the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will find a way to bless you in that. Friends, let me speak on something that is difficult to speak about. And why it is difficult to speak about is that it is so easily misunderstood. And I just pray, Lord, that if there's anybody who's going to misunderstand what I say now, protect them from it, Lord. Let there be no misunderstanding about what I say. (coughs) Friends, there are times when God appoints correction for his believers. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And sometimes he has to give a spanking, so to speak, to an erring believer. It's not because he hates you. It's because he loves you. It's because he loves you enough to deal with you and to train you and to bring you into his place and bring you under his will. His discipline is a sign of his love. Now, the reason why this is so easily misunderstood is, friends, sometimes believers think that God is chastening them when he's not. But there are situations where God disciplines a believer. And here's what I want to get across to you. If you are under God's discipline, don't fight it. Surrender to it. Bear the yoke. Hitch me up, God. If because of your discipline, because of my foolishness, I need to be brought down a few notches, then Lord, bring me down. I'm not going to fight against it. Put me under the yoke of the king of Babylon. That's what God was telling these ancient kings. Can I give you some better yoke news? How about what our precious Savior Jesus said? You know this, don't you? You know these verses? Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You know, when you picture Jeremiah walking around in that yoke, and when you see how it pictures the judgment that was coming upon not only Judah, but the other nations as well, would you just stop and say, Jesus, I don't ever want to have to wear the yoke of Babylon. I want your yoke, Jesus. Your yoke is easy. Your burden is light. That's what the Savior has appointed for you. Verse 12. I also spoke to Zedekiah, king of Judah, according to all these words, saying, Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Why will you die, you and your people, by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence, as the Lord has spoken against the nation that will not serve the king of Babylon? Therefore, do not listen to the words of the prophets who speak to you, saying, You shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you, for I have not sent them, says the Lord. Yet they prophesy a lie in my name, that I may drive you out, and that you may perish, you and the prophets who prophesy to you. You see, that message was not only for the surrounding nations, it was also for King Zedekiah and the kingdom of Judah. Verse 16. Also, I spoke to the priests and to all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, 
Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, saying, Behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back from Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you. Do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city be laid to waste? Now notice, there were false prophets in that day giving a false prophecy. What was the false prophecy? Verse 16. Behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back from Babylon. What were the vessels of the Lord's house? Well, they were gold and silver cups and platters and pitchers. Maybe things like the altar of incense, the golden candlestick, you know, the menorah. Uh, maybe the uh, other accoutrements and things in the tabernacle, in the temple. Excuse me, in the temple, not the tabernacle. The tabernacle had been long since replaced. All these furnishings, all these gold vessels and articles. This was valuable treasure. Here's the other thing. Whenever one nation conquered another nation in the ancient world, what they did was they took the idols of the nation they conquered and they put them back and they put them back in their own temple. Well, was there any idol in the temple of Jerusalem? No. So they just brought the treasures of the temple. Now, the false prophets said, they're coming back. The, the king of Babylon took all these treasures from our temple, but they're coming back. Jeremiah says, no way. They're not coming back. That is not a true word from the Lord. Second Chronicles chapter 26, verse 7 says, Nebuchadnezzar also carried off some of the articles from the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple in Babylon. That was in the very first invasion, the one where Daniel was taken away. Jeremiah says, they're not coming back. Don't get your hopes up. Now, verse 18. But if they are prophets and the word of the Lord is with them, let them now make intercession to the Lord of hosts that the vessels which are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah and at Jerusalem, do not go to Babylon. Oh yeah, these false prophets? You know, if they're so right on, why don't they pray and pray that what remains at the temple never gets taken away? Friends, it was going to get taken away in just a matter of months with the Babylonians coming. Jeremiah knew that just like Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, when he challenged the false prophets to pray and see God answer, nothing would happen. Now to conclude the chapter, verse 19. For thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars, concerning the sea, concerning the carts, concerning the remainder of the vessels that remain in the city, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take, when he carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from Jerusalem to Babylon, and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Yes, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that remain in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah and of Jerusalem, they shall be carried to Babylon And there they shall be until the day that I visit them, says the Lord. Then I will bring them up and restore them to this place. The false prophets said, they're coming back. Jeremiah said, no way. Matter of fact, what we have, what remains is going to go away. Oh, it'll come back someday, but not for a long time. Not until the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, friends, this is very interesting. It talks about all these different aspects of the temple and what was there. Do you notice one thing that wasn't mentioned in this? The Ark of the Covenant. What happened to the Ark of the Covenant? It's not mentioned here. Was it already taken to Babylon? Was it already, um, uh, you know, melted down? I'll tell you, there's a few main theories. Uh, one theory is that it was hidden away and Indiana Jones found it later on and right now that it's in a government warehouse somewhere. Uh, that doesn't have a lot of things. It's like cinematography, but listen, it's not really. 
Um, The other big theme, the other big idea is simply this, that there's Jewish legends, I can't say they're anything more than legends, that Jeremiah hid the Ark of the Covenant before Jerusalem was conquered. There are people who believe, there are rabbis who will tell you, that it is within the caverns, because there's caverns and tunnels underneath the Temple Mount, that it is hidden away there. Is it possible? Yes, I suppose it's possible. There are other people who think, listen, it was just taken away. It was taken away by Nebuchadnezzar and just got melted down. That's possible too. There's also an intriguing possibility in the book of Revelation. John says he sees an Ark of the Covenant in heaven, in Jerusalem. There's some people think that it got raptured, so to speak, that it got taken up to heaven. Maybe, I don't know about that. But here's the point. It got lost track of in history And when the temple was rebuilt, they never put an Ark of the Covenant back in it. When Jesus visited the temple, now he didn't go inside the temple building, not being a priest according to Aaron, order of of Aaron. He was a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, but not according to Aaron. But the priests in that day, in the Holy of Holies, there was nothing in there. The Ark of the Covenant did not exist. It was not in there in those days. It got lost track of in the days of Jeremiah. So this is something of a mystery. This is something of a mystery. But let's end on this hopeful note. Verse 22. They shall be carried to Babylon, and there they shall be until the day that I visit them. God promised that the remaining vessels would be carried away from the temple and brought brought to Babylon, but in time, God would restore them. And friends, in Ezra chapter 1, verses 7 through 11... And in Ezra chapter 7, I believe at verse 19, it tells us specifically that that was fulfilled. That many of the articles that were taken away by Nebuchadnezzar ended up going back when the Babylonians were conquered by the Medes and Persians. God fulfilled his promise. So can I just conclude with two principles? Number one, number one, God keeps his promises. It's true. He keeps his promises of judgment, friends, but he also keeps his promises of mercy and grace and forgiveness. You can appeal to God on the basis of those promises because God is a promise-keeping God. But then number two, God knows when and how to restore to usefulness. Sometimes you meet people and just feel useless. I'm useless in the world. Maybe at one time I had some use, but now I just feel useless. Where am I at? What does God want from me? What am I doing? I tell you, friends, God knows how to take those articles that were once of use in the temple, but the Babylonians took them away and they were useless for a long time. God knows how to restore to usefulness once again. I can tell you this. If you feel useless in the kingdom of God and in this world, God does not want you to feel that way. I can assure you of that. And you should be praying right now, okay, God, what use do you have for me in this world? I know that there is one. I know there may be many. You show me what it is. Father, thank you that that's the kind of God you are. You are a God who restores to youthfulness. Lord, you had your timing. You had your place. You had your manner for doing it. So, Lord, I just pray. I pray for a mighty blessing upon all who hear your word tonight. But, Lord, I pray that you would give every one of them the hope and the encouragement of usefulness before you. And Lord, if I could be so bold, I want to pray that you'd give us some of the courage that Jeremiah showed in chapter 26. 
Fill us with it, Lord. Pour out your grace upon us. Thank you for your goodness among us here this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.